The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This weekly show will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the reality and growth of the modernist heresy which surrounds and threatens to engulf faithful Catholics. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration, with articles, books, and videos available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of the radio network are underwritten by True Restoration, our particular show is truly listener-supported. We have annual radio subscriptions for the subscriber of every level, available by clicking the Donate button at truerestoration.org. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on blogtalkradio.com slash restorationradio and are syndicated on iTunes and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Flickr, LinkedIn, and Pinterest by following us using the social buttons on truerestoration.org. Tonight we will hear two sermons from Father Anthony Ciccata, Associate Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Roman Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and frequent guest on the Restoration Radio Network. Tonight Father will preach two sermons of particular interest to traditional Catholics, focusing on unity of traditional Catholics and understanding some of the internal politics between priests in this day and age and how they are not unlike the priestly politics of yesteryear. And now we join Father Chicada. Why can't we all just get along? These are the very, very famous words of Rodney King, whose beating in 1991 provoked riots in Los Angeles. And, I have mercy on the crowd, words my friends in Christ, taken from today's gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. This past April 27th, Sunday, was the 25th anniversary of Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre expelling from the Society of St. Pius X nine American priests, including Bishop Dolan, Bishop Sanborn, and myself. At issue were a number of things. The Archbishop and the Pius X Society were trying to get us to uh, accept uh, unacceptable liturgical changes, uh, to accept doubtfully ordained priests, priests ordained in the new rite, to accept modern marriage annulments, and uh, a number of other things as well. This the Archbishop and the Society were doing with a, a, a view toward establishing some sort of a, a compromise solution with John Paul II and, at that time, his right-hand man, uh, Joseph Ratzinger. So we would not stand for accepting these 
particular changes in these particular proposals, so we were expelled from the uh, Society of St. Pius X. Now, you recall this year that to commemorate that anniversary, we served free champagne to celebrate. The situation looked very bad 25 years ago, but we uh, learned in retrospect that, in fact, it was the hand of divine providence that was operating for us. In any event, at the reception, I heard someone who was drinking champagne say, well, why can't these traditional priests just get along? I felt like interrupting and saying, as the kids would say today, oh, hello, I can't get along with them because they teach a different doctrine. And they teach a doctrine that's false. Sure, everyone says a form of the Latin Mass and claims to oppose modernism. But the Rodney King question puts doctrine in the back seat. It reduces it to something that's secondary or that's an add-on. But doctrine, the faith, not just the Latin Mass, has to be the primary motive for our, con our combat and indeed is the only possible source of unity and of agreement. You can get to heaven without the Latin Mass, but you can't get to heaven without the Catholic faith. And that is the point. So those who are new to the traditional movement often ask about the divisions, puzzling divisions among traditional Catholics. So those of you who have been with it for a while, how should you think about this? How should you understand it? What's your answer to the question, well, why can't we all just get along? I would give you two answers. First is the remote cause of the situation in uh, the church. That no, there's no true pope who exercises authority. And secondly, there's a more proximate cause, and that is the one to which I just alluded, that there are in fact substantial differences in doctrine and discipline among different traditionalist groups. The first point, the remote cause. No pope who exercises authority. Reason tells us that an organization that is headless disintegrates. And our Lord himself in Holy Scripture says, strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. That indeed is the situation of those who try to remain faithful. Those of us who grew up in the 1950s, the balmy pre-Vatican II days, uh, look back at that and, and we say that there were really very few conflicts, noticeable conflicts among uh, Catholics, certainly among members of the Catholic clergy, and that it was a, a real era of peace. However, it, we have a false impression, I think, those of us who grew up then, and we tend to conclude that, well, that's what I experienced, and so most of church history was like that. 
But that, of course, is completely wrong. Completely wrong. When uh, people ask me about uh, our own situation, I generally mention two things. One thing is uh, uh, the historical point about Catholics in 16th and 17th uh, century England during the uh, persecutions by the Protestants. Catholics were threatened with death for the faith, especially the Catholic clergy. And uh, there was a, a series of incidents in 1600 called the Wisbeach Stirs. Wisbeach is a uh, uh, city in the Isle of Eli in England, and Stirs was the um, way of saying disturbances. So in 1600, there are 33 diocesan priests who were imprisoned in Wisbeach Castle by the Protestants, and they were threatened with death for being Catholic priests. Nevertheless, from prison, they sneak out a letter to the Pope. Now, communicating with the Pope was treason. This was also punishable by death. The contents of the letter... You know, was it some stirring confession of the Catholic faith? Nope. It was a petition to the Pope to remove the Jesuits from England. Isn't human nature wonderful? There is a uh, another thing in history. In 1631, there's a diocesan priest named Richard Smith. And he was made a bishop by the Pope, and he was sent into hiding in England. And he wrote in 1631 to a cardinal the following, I am now shut up perpetually in a small bedroom. I can never allow myself to go out to breathe fresh air. I am at the mercy of the plots of the heretics and the harassing Jesuits. There's another incident. The Jesuits set up a a secret shrine for the laity on pilgrimage to visit the holy well of St. Wilfred that had been a very famous place of of pilgrimage in in Flintshire. And the Jesuits uh, said Mass in secret there near the well in a hotel that was called the Star Inn. Well, the diocesan clergy... They thought that this was an encroachment on their, their territory, so they set up a rival mass center a mile away at an inn called the Cross Keys. In addition to England, I think of the conflicts in the own, uh, in uh, my own order, the order to which I belong, the Cistercians in the 17th century France. Uh, there was a, a division between a faction in the order that wanted to abstain completely from meat and from another faction that wanted to eat meat occasionally. So over this issue, there were endless lawsuits back and forth in, in civil and canonical court, pamphlets written against each other, locking each other out of elections and so on. And not only that, the, the dispute continued for 100 years. Both of these situations are like and unlike our own time and the disputes which we face. 
First of all, there was no pope who could truly exercise authority in these countries. The king of England didn't recognize the authority of the pope in his country at all. And the king of France wouldn't let the pope exercise his authority in France without the king's permission. So in the practical order, both countries were in a state of sede vacante. The pope, there was no pope in those countries, in effect, to rule. And so with no pope to shepherd them, Catholics ended up disagreeing and fighting among themselves. So in that sense, these historical periods are very much like our own time. So from a historical perspective, certainly such things are uh, understandable, regrettable, though they may be. However, there is this difference. On the other hand, unlike our own time, there was at least a true pope somewhere whom everyone recognized as having ultimate authority. And secondly, disputes were over matters that were essentially secondary matters. Who runs the English missions? Who eats meat? And of these, one could perhaps well have said, well, why can't these priests just get along? But all the parties agreed on Catholic doctrine. And on this, which of course is the central issue, they did indeed get along very well. So that's our first point. The uh, remote cause. Lack of a true pope to exercise authority. The second issue is this. There's a concrete question. Why can't I, Father Chicada, just get along with various other groups, say, in the Cincinnati area, uh, that elsewhere promote the Latin Mass. You have St. Pius the Tenth in Northside, St. Pius V in Norwood, the Fenites in Kentucky, and so on. Why can't you get along with them? Now, I am willing to have lunch with a priest from any one of these groups, and I'd even pick up the tab. But... An inability to be friendly or nice or personally charitable is not the point. These groups promote false doctrines or discipline. First of all, the Pius X Society. They promote, in effect, error, schism, and apostasy. The notion that you can recognize someone as a pope but not do any blessed thing he says if you decide not to do that. You set a private judgment over each papal teaching and law. You have the idea, you promote the notion that church authority can give evil uh, laws and false doctrine. You uh, maintain it's permissible to uh, defy the man you say is the Pope by maintaining parallel hierarchy. These notions are uh, schismatic and uh, embody false doctrine. And at the same time... uh, The organization promotes union with the One World Church of the Antichrist with Ratzinger, constant negotiations with him, and uh, to uh, achieve this end. So that's the problem there. Or with the Pius V Society, this idea of the error-cism and uh, a cult-like mentality. This organization stubbornly promotes uh, grossly ignorant errors regarding the basic principles of sacramental theology. 
they say that uh, certain sacraments are uh, invalid when according to all the principles of uh, Catholic moral sacramental theology, uh, these sacraments are valid. And then they refuse sacraments to Catholics who would otherwise have the right to receive them. You go over to um, uh, Norwood and they find out you're from here and uh, they will refuse you, you know, Holy Communion or they will refuse you absolution. Right. Or also, uh, what must be said is a cult-like control of adherence through guilt and fear. The leader of their organization uh, once told us that, well, yeah, the only thing that the laity really understand are guilt and fear. So that's how you have to motivate people. Thanks, but no thanks. Or if you take the question of the Feniites, followers of Father Feeney, they deny the Catholic doctrine of baptism of desire and baptism of blood. And they limit their obligation to believe uh, to only those things that you find in ex cathedra or papal pronouncements. And this is an idea that is condemned by Pius the uh, Ninth and the Syllabus of Errors. So, you know, just get along with, with what? The sin of schism, invalidly ordained priests, uh, error and ignorance of sacramental principles, or denials of church doctrine. The issue is doctrine. You can't just say, well, you know, we just get along and ignore that point. And uh, here a layman might be tempted to say, well, how can I figure that out? How am I supposed to figure that out? Well, the answer is study. You read and you study. You don't just throw up your hands. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to know your faith. The faith is important. So, to conclude, why are there conflicts among traditional priests? Well, there's no functioning authority. The lesson of history is that this is uh, inevitable, even for those who agreed on doctrine and on who the Pope is. So in our situation, it's no surprise. Strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. And it is consoling, though, to look at history, that to see despite all of this, the Catholic faith, faith survived survive those times, and it will survive in our own times, despite these uh, difficulties that we find so upsetting. And why can't Father Chicada get along with Pius X-ers or Pius V-ers or Feniites and so on? Don't they promote the Latin Mass too? And the answer is simple, that their doctrine is false. And if there's a conflict over doctrine, well, there should be a conflict over doctrine. And we should not be surprised, because our Lord predicted it. Do not think that I came to send peace upon the earth. I came not to send peace but the sword. I came to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a man's enemy shall be of his own household. Those are words that refer not to personal conflicts or, or arguments about secondary things, but about doctrine, about uh, Christ's teaching. That's the image of uh, the sword, the sword of truth, the sword of the Spirit, the sword of Catholic doctrine.
So there you have it. An explanation why conflict with error is inevitable. So, why can't we get along? Because our our king's name is not Rodney, but is Christ. God bless you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. And the scene takes place on the Isle of the Kiwai in Cambridgeshire, about 150 miles north of London. It takes place in a castle called Wisbeach Castle. There, in that gloomy dungeon, are 33 Roman Catholic priests. They've all been imprisoned there by Elizabeth I, the Protestant Queen of England. And they've been gathered from dioceses throughout the whole of the British Isles. Their crime was that they refused to accept the new and the false religion of Elizabeth. They refused to accept the new and false form of worship that she tried to foist off on Catholics in Britain. Some of them had celebrated Mass after the Mass had been forbidden secretly administered the sacraments furtively and privately. And their punishment was to be expelled from the parishes, to be imprisoned without a trial, and to be threatened with the traitor's death. The terrible death of hanging, drawing, and quartering. These 33 diocesan priests were undergoing a living martyrdom for the Catholic faith and for the Catholic Mass. Meanwhile, fellow priests, priests like them, were risking exactly the same fate and the same type of death which they faced. These men, too, were going about in England bringing the Mass and the sacraments to scattered groups of Catholics who remained faithful to their Lord. Among these priests were diocesan priests, like themselves, like the ones in prison, members of different religious orders, some Franciscans, some Dominicans, but principally members of the Jesuit order, men like Father Campion, and Father Garnet, who would later themselves undergo martyrdom for the faith. 
Fenway Campion and Garnet had been educated in Belgium and smuggled into England. And like all Catholic priests in England, they were trying to do the work of God. <clears throat> On November 17, 1600, a letter to the Pope was prepared by these 33 priests. It is secretly passed around among them. Each one of them, each one of these heroes for the faith, gravely reads the letter to the Holy Father, nods, and appends his signature to the bottom. The guard is then bribed, and the letter is passed to a confederate waiting outside Wisbeach Prison. The confederate in turn passes it to a messenger who gallops off into the night and grabs a ship to Europe and then heads off toward Rome. A few months later, a letter arrives in Rome. The Pope's secretary opens the letter. He reads it. He looks at the 33 signatures of these heroes for the Catholic faith and he sighs to himself and he says great, another one he takes the letter puts it over on this huge pile he has on the side of his desk of the rest of the letters he has received from English diocesan priests just like these men each and every one of them writing to the Pope to complain about the power-hungry Jesuits who are trying to take over the missions in England. <laughs> the 33 Catholic priests from Wisbeach, like the rest of the persecuted diocesan clergy in England, were trying to get the Pope to pull the Jesuits out and leave the missions under their control. So this wasn't the first time. It was the second appeal that the priest of Wisbeach had made to the papal court. The first had taken place two years previously. In 1602, the Pope issued a compromise decision, but the rivalry continued between the Jesuits and the diocesan priests, even in the face of persecution even in the face of death. In 1629, the persecution abated somewhat. Then what happened is that the conflicts began to come out into the open again between the Jesuits and the diocesans. The Jesuits and the diocesan priests launched suits and countersuits against each other at the papal courts, <clears throat> expended great sums of money hiring canon lawyers to defend their positions, a little later, we read an account by one Richard Smith. He was a diocesan priest who had secretly been made a bishop. Remember, it was a crime punishable by death to be ordained a priest or bishop abroad and to come to function in England. So he entered England in disguise, entered secretly, and went about confirming children, secretly ordaining priests, 
And in hiding, he writes the following letter in 1631 to a cardinal, who was the friend of his. And after going through all his woes and trials and tribulations, he ends up by saying, I am shut up perpetually in a small bedroom and can never allow myself to breathe fresh air. I am at the mercy of the plots of the heretics and the harassing Jesuits. <laughs> In an incident which will perhaps sound familiar to some of us, another incident, there is a very famous place of pilgrimage in Flintshire in England called Holy Well of St. Wilfred. It had been a great pilgrimage place before the so-called Reformation. And Catholics were desirous to go there still, even at the risk of their lives. To accommodate the spiritual needs of these Catholics, the Jesuit Fathers set up a secret uh, mass center and shrine to the laity who came to visit the pilgrimage places. This was uh, hidden in a hotel called the Star Inn. The diocesan clergy heard about this and then set up a rival mass center while on the road at the Cross Keys. These conflicts continued until the middle of the 19th century when the hierarchy was finally restored in England. Some 250 years. The point is that we're used to thinking that before Vatican II, everything was conflict-free in the Catholic Church. We look back to the uh, golden, almost Ozzy and Harriet-like days of 1950s Catholicism, when the angelic pastor, Pius XII, kept everyone alive. And the hierarchy was filled with Spellmans, was filled with Doherty's, was filled with Mundelines. And uh, you never heard, really, uh, a breath of dispute among Catholics. We wish it could be so in our own time, of course, but if we look over the history of the Church, we see that it was not always thus. We can take a, another example uh, from the pages of the history of the order of which I was a member, the Cistercian Order. Cistercian Order was founded by uh, St. Robert of Malem, St. Stephen Harding, and St. Albrecht in the year 1089. Cistercian order had many, many great saints. Uh, they considered themselves a reform of the Benedictines and set out to live a, a very strict life according to the rule of St. Benedict. Well, as faith would have it, in the 17th century, as at the same time that the Jesuits and diocesan priests were fighting for the control of missions in England. The Cistercians were at it in France. Now there was a, a division in the order between two groups. Uh, one group referred to as the ancients, the ancients or the common observants. Uh, the other group was called the strict observants, we call them the Trappists today, or the abstinence. Abstinence. Now, the, what was at issue was the question of whether or not, according to the rule of our Holy Father Benedict, it would be permitted from time to time to eat meat. The ancients said no and claimed that they were maintaining the order's ancient traditions, 
And the, uh, the abstinence said that no, you, you, could not eat, uh, you could not eat any meat at all. Ancients said you could eat meat, abstinence said you couldn't. So a fight ensued, naturally. And the conflict lasted for 100 years. And there's a whole book that's written on the subject. It's absolutely fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I picked it up, in fact, in an airport bookstore of all things. It's called The Rise of the Cistercian Strict Observance in 17th Century France. It's written by Father Louis Mackay, who is one of the greatest uh, historians of our order. And he says in his book that... uh, Part of the problem was that the the, uh, papal decrees couldn't be enforced in France without the consent of the French monarch, the French king. And this was one of the occasions, if you will, for the dispute. So on the side of the ancients, uh, those supporting the ancients were the, the Parliament of Paris, the Bishop of Dijon, a city in southern France, and the civil government of the city of Dijon where uh, this is in the area where most of the monasteries were located. On the side of the abstinence, those who did not want to eat meat was Cardinal Richelieu and were members of the King's Council. Now, you read through this book, and what you find, you find that throughout the 17th century, there were endless lawsuits between the two parties, both civil lawsuits, ecclesiastical lawsuits, Uh, complaints on both sides of alienation and mismanagement of funds, Uh, one side pronouncing the other side's vows invalid and vice versa. Uh, There are scenes of locking each other out of elections, monasteries, charges of bad faith and lust for power. Uh, Now, Father Lakai's book has some very interesting passages. The first that we take concerns an election at Cito. Now, Cito was the uh, mother house of the whole Cistercian order. It was where the order was founded. It was supposed to be envisioned by St. Robert of Milan as the great place of monastic peace. Well, it wasn't in 17th century France, and we read the following account of certain circumstances surrounding an election uh, for the abbot general of the order. It takes place in the year 1643. Early in the morning, January 2nd, 21 members of the ancient or common observance assembled in the chamber of Jean Boucherat, and ignoring the protests of the abstinence, entered the church for the celebration of the Mass of the Holy Ghost to begin the chapter. After the Mass, finding that the abstinence had locked the doors of the definitorium, which was the traditional place where elections were held, they repaired to the chapter hall, pursued by the indignant abstinence. There was, says Father Lakai, however, no physical violence at this time. <laughs> Another incident. Charges of bad faith. Always something that's fairly common in conflicts. The <clears throat> point of view of the common or ancient observance was aptly summarized in a letter written shortly after the publication of one of the council's decisions, that's the King's Council's decision, the abbot of Clerval, uh, one of the uh, most famous Cistercian monasteries, the monastery of St. Bernard, added up, the abbot of Clerval complained that, quote, hypocrisy, unquote, had prevailed upon the Queen and upon the King's Council for this decision. 
For this was resulting from, and we quote, the whisperings of a certain secular priest, Vincent by name, the greatest enemy of the venerable traditions of the Cistercian order, and most amicably disposed toward the reformers called abstinence, who in reality are wearing merely the mask and semblance of false piety. <laughs> the certain secular priests criticized for doing this whispering, we know today as St. Vincent de Paul. <laughs> we find uh, another incident with which perhaps some of us can identify, where <clears throat> the civil authority and the police were actually called. Uh, this uh, took place at the monastery of Lambo. Uh, one of the supporters of the abstinence, Hervé du Tatla, decided to exploit the opportunity at Lambo, and on January 10, 1661, dispatched three of his monks to Lambo under armed escort furnished by the local authorities. The two stubborn ancients in the monastery were forced to leave. They retreated to Villeneuve, but only there to organize an armed band of sympathetic neighbors. It was with such help that on February 3rd, the ancients returned to Lanvaux and ousted the reformed monks by force. The indignant uh, Tertre summoned the seneschal, that is to say, the sheriff of Oray, who on February 5th marched with his police force to the Abbey and after scuffling with the ancients, reinstated the abstinence. <laughs> the, local, the perplexed local magistrates attempted to conciliate and suggested that the Abbey was big enough to accommodate both observances. But in the atmosphere of increasing bitterness, such solutions were no longer feasible. In fact, Nicholas Paget, the abbot of Villeneuve, thought it was his duty to offer help again to the hard-pressed ancients. Leading some 30 armed men, he rode to Lanfo and after a violent scene threw out the hapless abstinence. Expecting retaliation, the new possessors of the abbey barricaded all entrances and prepared themselves for the inevitable siege. When Tertre returned uh, <clears throat> with his grievances uh, to the parliament, which uh, reaffirmed the rights of the strict observance over Lanvaux. By the force of this decision, the local military surrounded the abbey on May 6th, and after having broken down doors and windows and climbing through barricaded hallways, both suffering and inflicting some bruises in the melee. Thus, the superior forces prevailing by the end of 1661 were those of the strict observance, and they were in firm possession of the monastic battlefield. Now, well, this sort of thing is no exception in the history of the church. Examples could be multiplied, uh, multiplied if you read history closely. But I'd like to draw two lessons from this, two traps for our time, among the many traps for our time. We often observe conflict among traditional Catholics. We lament it. We become discouraged by it. But I think we should look to history for some lessons and for some consolation. The first trap for traditionalists, I think, is that of discouragement. I often say to people who are worried about conflicts that to be a good traditional Catholic, 
you'd have to have a skin like an armadillo. And perhaps to be a good traditional Catholic priest, you have to have a skin like a tank. <laughs> now, remember, conflicts and disagreements are the result of the fall of Adam, the result of our darkened intellects, of our weakened will, of our inclination toward what is called irascibility. We tend, because of our pride, to get very, very angry indeed. But we must be realists. We must face this fact of our wounded human nature. And we must realize that men of goodwill will sometimes disagree and will come to blows and conflict over questions which are matters of prudential judgment. We saw that in the dispute between the Jesuits and the seculars and between the abstinence and the ancients. Now, <clears throat> we look at history, though, we see the faith survived. We see the Mass survived. We see that the sacraments survived. It survived the Jesuit diocesan conflict in England. It survived the ancient and the abstinent conflict in France. It can survive us, too. It can survive us, too. So, in the face of the tragic discouragement, we must be consoled. <clears throat> the second trap is the trap of false authority. If there's one lesson among the many we can learn from history, it is that Catholics need authority over them. In our examples, the Catholics, technically speaking, had real authority over them, the authority of, of the Pope. But the Pope could not effectively exercise his uh, authority because of the secular power in both England and France. In our own time, we have somewhat of an analogous situation. The hierarchy has defected from the faith and as a result have lost their authority. Uh, hence, it is that conflicts will arise over matters of prudential judgment, over matters of theological opinion which only a pope could resolve, invoking his authority. The one trap and the one temptation we have is to set up, in one way or another, a substitute for this authority of the Church in some person, in some prelate, or in some organization. But aiming to resolve conflicts this way, uh, frequently we end up just creating more conflicts. I've experienced this, so have all of you. The effects of investing one person or organization with the substitute authority, substitute for the real authority of the church and the infallibility of the Pope. <coughs> These named Lefebvre, Chocard, Girard, Delorier, Kelly, or even in my own case especially, Chicada. <laughs> or be it uh, substituting for authority by the SSPX, CMRI, SSPD, or CMPCA, or any one of the other combinations of letters in the traditional alphabet soup. 
Remember, there is no substitute in any person or organization for the authority of the Pope and for the hierarchy he appoints to govern the Catholic Church. So, if, we're, if we must be consoled at the thought of history, we must also be warned. To conclude, what should we do? We should, first of all, I think, take our consolation from history, realize that uh, these things, these conflicts at least, have happened before. Secondly, we have to keep our eye on our heavenly goal. And thirdly, when disputes arise over matters of mere prudential judgment, let us please try to act with charity, with restraint. <coughs> Fourthly, we must admit to ourselves at least that we can make mistakes and that we are not infallible. Still today, Right. I would have sided against St. Vincent de Paul on the question of who was right, the ancients or the abstinence. I would have definitely sided with the ancients. And who would probably contend that he was a saint, but he was on the wrong side. We can think of other examples of that in history. Fifthly, we have to, in our zeal, try to avoid bitterness the bitterness of a bitter zeal. And sixthly, we have to get on with the work of saving our souls and saving the souls of others. We look for an assessment and a warning, I think, to some words of Father Lacai <coughs> on the Cistercian conflict. Here's what he said of this whole hundred-year-long conflict. For nearly all of the conflict's capable leaders were drawn into a consuming and yet barren fight for power. The best minds of three successive generations spent more time in planning legal strategy than in meditation, used up a greater amount of paper in writing defamatory pamphlets than in works of edification spent longer hours sitting on court benches and choir stalls. Again, he says, it's a warning to us all. <coughs> when the parties blinded by ever-rising passions were unable to settle among themselves what could not be hopeless, uh, could not by hopelessly muddled court procedures be settled either. <coughs> Barrels of ink spilled over acres of paper by restless pens have helped only posterity's curious historians without contributing anything to the comfort of those who wielded them. Had the immense energy, time, talent, and financial sacrifice been used for the rebuilding of the moral and material foundations of the order, the movement would have had far happier results. In truth, even the acceptance of the final compromise was not the triumph of belated wisdom over inveterate prejudice, but rather the effect of opportunistic considerations on the part of the common servants and befuddled exhaustion on the part of the strict observance. The men who helped shape
when they preferred force to persuasion, legal justice to charity, defiance to obedience, they fell into the same temptation that victimized most of their contemporaries. They were all activated by the unshaken conviction that anything less than battling with unflagging pertinacity to the last for his position would amount to a shameful betrayal of the holy cause. Their dispute now is one which is of interest only to historians. So too the conflict of the Wisbech affair of the Wisbech stirs in England between the Jesuits and the diocesans. Perhaps the conflicts of our own time among traditionalists will end up the same way. In the meantime, we pray fervently that God, in these difficult times, will strengthen us with his might and endow us with patience and long-suffering and somehow grant us a measure of his peace. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit. For more information on the ministry of Father Anthony Chicada, you may write to him at the following. Reverend Father Anthony Chicada, that's C-E-K-A-D-A, 4900 Rialto Road, R-I-A-L-T-O, Westchester, Ohio, 45069. You may also explore many of Father's voluminous writings, books, and videos at his website, sggresources.org, as well as traditionalmass.org. Father Chicada may also be heard on the Restoration Radio Network's show, Clerical Conversations on the Crisis, where he has a recurring guest with His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn. Father has also made occasional appearances on our flagship show, True Restoration. We will be on air one week from this evening at the same time, and will present an hour-long conference from His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, who will explain why it is that the Catholic Church is indeed the one true church. Catholics should take time to hear this conference and never tire of augmenting the fundamentals of our faith with solid apologetics. We at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small it may be. To those of you who have donated to us, we extend a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or via email at mail at truerestoration.org. And until next time, keep the faith. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.